Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's special episode, David Harrell from Morningstar Investment Management and Kevin Brown from Morningstar Research Services do a deep dive into the top three companies on Morningstar's REIT coverage list. I'm David Harrell, editor of Morningstar Dividend Investor Newsletter, and I'm here today with Kevin Brown, who is a Morningstar analyst who specializes in the coverage of REITs or real estate investment trust. Kevin, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Could you start out by just talking a little bit about your role and Morningstar's coverage of the REIT industry? Sure. Uh, so I've been covering uh, REITs uh, for my entire uh, professional career for the past 18 years. Um, and so right now at Morningstar, I cover all the core real estate sectors, all the REITs in them. Uh, so that includes office retail, which includes malls, shopping centers, and the triple net REITs, uh, the residential REITs, which includes both apartments and single family rental homes, the hotel REITs, healthcare REITs, industrial REITs, and self-storage REITs. In total, that is 27 total companies at the moment. Um, and we do cover a handful of other REITs um, throughout Morningstar, but those are handled by some other analysts. Uh, that includes the cell phone towers, uh, data mm-hmm. storage REITs, and the timber REITs. Uh, so my analysis today is going to be um, primarily focused on the core sectors that I, I cover. Okay. And those are all U.S.-based REITs, correct? Correct. Yes. Those are all U.S. REITs, and their portfolios are almost entirely uh, concentrated in the U.S. Okay. Great. Now, you recently released a great research report on REITs and dividends. So there's lots there of interest for income-focused investors. But I wanted to start out uh, with something else, and that's um, economic moats. And as you know, Mm -hmm. the Morningstar approach to equity analysis is sort of built around this concept of economic moats or firms' ability to defend themselves against from their competitors. Uh, and the idea being if you're returning if you're earning excess returns on capital and you can sustain your competitive advantages for at least 10 years, uh, Morningstar analysts will award a firm a narrow economic moat. Uh, if they can sustain those advantages for 20 years or more, it'll receive a wide moat rating. Now, um, you know, in your report, you, you're highlighting those 27 REITs under coverage, uh, but none of them currently earn a narrow or wide economic uh, moat rating. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Why do none of why do none of the REITs have these sort of sustainable competitive competitive advantages right now? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, it's because at Morningstar we have a very strict definition for what constitutes an economic moat. And Mm -hmm. as we go, I mean, we do a very rigorous analysis each and every company that we cover. um, And just unfortunately, none of the REITs, um, you know, their their portfolios meet that strict definition. And you can give, you know, different reasons for different sectors, um, you know, for say hotels or for office companies, you know, they only own a very small percentage of the buildings, um, you know, in their sectors, in the markets that they're concentrated in, you know, some of the most concentrated hotel REITs, um, you know, only own maybe 10% of the hotel rooms in the markets that they're most concentrated in. So not enough for them to actually generate um, pricing power. And that doesn't even include, say, the Airbnb type of shadow supply in those markets. Um, So, you know, very small percentage of actual assets owned in the very large, you know, uh, U.S. real estate market. Um, Another issue that many run into is that there's, you know, 
almost no barriers to entry for many of these sectors. For example, apartments in suburban settings, you know, very easy to build new apartment buildings, you know, just down the street that will be very similar to what the REITs currently own. Same thing with, say, self-storage facilities. You can go down the road and build, you know, in just any plot of land, a self-storage facility, you know, pretty much wherever you want. Um, another major issue is that, you know, they're limited by um, their ability to push rents on their tenants uh, without having their tenants say, you know what, we could just do this ourselves. I'll give the example of the industrial REITs. You know, they have some very large tenants that, you know, can afford uh, significant rent increases each and every year, say Amazon, FedEx, you know, they can afford that to a certain extent, but they can't extract extravagant, you know, profits from them without having Amazon or FedEx just say, we can, we're better off, you know, with our own facilities, you know, the REITs provide flexibility and can expand and allows, you know, their tenants to focus on other things other than owning real estate assets, which is why it's a great marriage, but you don't want to upset your partner. Um, So you can't push too hard. Um, There's a limit. And the final thing is uh, many operators or tenants, you know, run very thin margins. Um, So you're limited to how much you can push rents, even if, you know, you are the stronger one in the, you know, the leverage dynamic, you know, for example, you know, retail REITs, you know, if you are, you're only able to push rent to match what revenue growth is for your retail tenants. And the retail tenants are only seeing limited, you know, sales growth at brick and mortar locations. Same thing with say the senior housing REITs. Um, You know, you're only able to push it as much as the operator who you hire to run the property is able to withstand without sending your operator into bankruptcy because they're the ones who are running the facility. So that's a big uh, concern there. However, we do think that they can make economic profits um, and they are, you know, strong companies. We just tend to define that as you know, the source of that is more from management teams, strong management okay. teams, rather than economic moats. And so management teams, you know, can turn over fairly quickly. Um, and so it doesn't meet the definition of, you know, needing 10 to 20 years. Um, but, you know, they can do things like many operate at margins well above the rest of their peers. I'll give the example okay. in hotels of Pebblebrook Hotel Trust, you know, their whole, uh, uh, story is that they would buy hotels that were poorly run by other uh, operators and, you know, come in and implement cost efficiencies and turn around the operating margin from, say, the teens into the 30s. Uh, same thing with, say, Welltower, a senior housing uh, healthcare REIT. Um, they operate with so many different senior housing operators that they've learned best practices and know what works best in each and every market and region. And so they're able to tell, you know, their operators, we think you could improve margins by doing X, Y, or Z that somebody else is doing. And because they have so many different relationships and operations going on at once, they can see what works best for everybody um, and push those efficiencies across their whole portfolio. And But that's really expertise of management that's not necessarily institutional to the real estate itself. Um, so other things that the REITs can do is they have, you know, significant ability to uh, develop new properties at high development yields. You have the industrial REITs that are very good at this. The apartment REITs for the past decade have been very strong at doing this. Um, and so a lot of what they're able to do is 
build at a development yield higher than um, you know the market average and creating cash flow um, you know higher than the debt that they're funding it with. Then um, finally, many are able to secure relationships with outside developers and acquire off-market deals. For example, Invitation Homes, a single-family rental REIT, is able to work with home builders and buy entire communities, you know, but from those home builders before they even hit the market. Um, and they're able to because they can pay for the entire community upfront, you know, they're willing to cut Invitation Homes a deal. And so are able to uh, you know, get it better than market deals. Um, and so that's how they're able to generate uh, cash flow. But again, that's a relationship that's not necessarily, it won't be necessarily transferred if the management team turns over. So that's not really a moat, but it is a where we think of ex- exemplary stewardship, you know, sort of generates, um, you know, excess cash flows for many of these companies. Got it. So you might look for something like the um, uh, allocation rating or, or something else as opposed to, to looking for a moat simply because there's not going to be a moat rating for any of these any of these firms. Correct. Okay. Okay. Now, in your report, um, obviously, you know, by definition, REITs must distribute uh, 90% of their net income as dividends each year in order to maintain their tax-free status. Uh, but you know that there's actually a fair amount of flexibility because cash flow can be quite a bit higher uh, than net income. Uh, so the sort of the, the 90% is a sort of a, a floor is for in terms of distribution, mm-hmm. uh, and that could rise all the way to 100% of, of the REIT's uh, cash flow. What, what do you like to look for in terms of the balance there? Uh, in terms of how much um, a REIT a REIT is distributing, yeah. So, you know, net income is is a floor, but it's not really a floor that is frequently too big of a concern for most of these REITs uh, because they do incur such large non-cash charges. The largest generally being uh, depreciation and amortization, um, and so that often, while they're generating positive cash flow, many times they will see net income be near or close to zero. Um, And so 90% of something that's close to zero is basically not a requirement for many of these guys. And in times where good, they still are paying out well above net income. So the REITs all uh, produce a metric, uh, an industry standard metric called funds from operation. Um, and that's the REIT standard cash flow metric that everybody uses and adheres to a strict definition of, of how they calculate funds from operation or FFO. Um, however, one of the big non-cash charges is, depreci- is depreciation, which the cash charge is capital maintenance expenditures. So we like to take the FFO that the companies report and then add to it what we assume is the appropriate level of capital uh, maintenance expenditures necessary to maintain the overall quality of the portfolio and to create something called AFO. Um, And so when we look at AFO, we like to see companies typically pay out about 85% of AFO over the long term in terms of dividends. If you get to 100%, you can go over 100% um, for a few quarters by, you know, you know, taking out a little bit of extra debt or paying, you know, down, uh, you know, using up cash on your balance sheet. Uh, but you can't sustain levels above 100% um, for a long time. But if you're 
well below that level, you're not really paying out to your to your shareholders. We often find that there's not that many excess uses of cash um, that are really going to generate value for shareholders. So you might as well give shareholders that that um, dividend that they they you know are expecting. Um, so really, I think 85 percent is a appropriate level for them to be at. And in our analysis, this actually tends to be over the long term where most companies cluster. Um, and, okay. and the companies that you know fall outside of a range of say plus or minus five or 10% from say the 85% target range, uh, generally there's something going on with that, that company um, that, that can explain it. Like a lot of variability say in the hotel industry um, where there's big spikes or falls um, that causes them to, you know, fall outside of it for an extended period of time. Okay. And that's 85% of AFO or adjusted funds from operations. Correct. Correct. Okay. Now, the other thing um, that you caution against in your report is simply buying uh, REITs based on on yield numbers alone. And I believe uh, looking back to the year 2000, uh, of the 27 REITs under coverage, I believe 20 of them have had at least one dividend cut during that time period? Correct, correct. Um, yeah, REITs, they generally try to not cut uh, their dividend. Um, and the big reason is that it just sends a terrible message to investors that you know right. the cash flows for, to the firm are significantly lower than their prior expectations and that the current dividend is unsustainable. Um, you know, the dividends for almost all REITs is very, very sticky um, and you build it up slowly over time at a sustainable pace. But if you have to cut, that's saying that cash flows are impaired. Um, and so part of the issue is that it causes you know, many income-oriented investors uh, that depend on the dividend to lose trust in the company. Um, and it's really hard to reestablish that trust. It could take a decade to convince investors that you know, we're not going to cut again as soon as our cash flows start to waver a bit. Um, so really, uh, there's only two major types of events um, that we've seen REITs over the past 20 years, um, you know, cut. One is, you know, if there's major company reorganizations, these are fairly rare, you know, major divestitures or, you know, you're spinning off various uh, parts of your business um, or just there's some major isolated events that are, you know, specific to you. Um, but these are very, very rare events, um, you know, only happening a handful of times across all of our coverage list over the past 20 years. So really the major driver of dividend cuts is recessions, economic recessions um, that have happened uh, over the past 20 plus years. Um, so the main ones, of course, are, you know, the 08, 09 financial recession and right. the uh, most recent pandemic. Uh, we saw, you know, more than half of the REITs we cover cut their dividend in each of these um, recessions. Now, generally, you know, I think the market recognizes in a recession that, you know, your cash flow is going to be significantly lower than your prior expectations. And so the penalty for cutting your dividend during a recession is far smaller. And you might as well lump in, you know, bad news altogether and just get it out of the way and say, our cash flow is going to be lower because of the recession. And as a result, we are cutting our dividend. Um, and that's what many of the uh, REITs have done um, over the past 20 years. Um, now, in the 08-09 recession, uh, the dividend cuts generally were caused more by uh, frozen debt markets um, than necessarily the 
uh, wavering cash flows. Um, the issue was just that REITs were just not able to issue new debt um, to pay off existing debt. Uh, and so, you know, they had to use cash on hand to pay off de- debt as it came due. Um, you know, many just delayed their cuts. You know, even though the recession started in 08, most of the cuts, dividend cuts, didn't happen until 2009 because they just waited as long as possible to see if there was any other alternatives. Um, but for many of these REITs, they were operating very high leverage levels in 07 um, and into 08. And so just they had significant amount of debt coming due in 2009. And so they were forced to you know, do a combination of things. One was cut make major cuts to their dividend. And another thing was many of the REITs were had to sell off assets um, as their debt came due because they just weren't able to tap into the debt markets. Now, more recently than during the pandemic, uh, we saw a recession where you know many thought that cash flows for these companies were going to be significantly impacted. And for a handful of them, say the hotel companies in particular, they really were significantly impacted. Uh, but for a lot of the other ones, I think there was a much more fear and uncertainty and just they didn't want they wanted to get ahead of things and not wait till the last possible minute to cut. And so almost all of the REITs who did cut, so about half of the REITs under our coverage, um, did so within the first three months of the pandemic. Now, some of this was done opportunistically, remembering the prior recession where I said you know, that many companies were forced to sell assets. Well, they thought, well, this pandemic is going to cause many of our competitors to have to sell a significant number of assets. And if we have cash on hand built up, you know, we're going to be able to pounce and get some great deals and acquire at some great cap rates. Um, now, that never really came to be. Uh, they, I think the impact to the cash flows were not nearly as great. And so there weren't the fire sales going on. And so many of the companies have since reinstated their dividends or at least, you know, made it a little bit better than, than the initial cuts that they had. They've raised it back up, maybe not fully, but, you know, they, they've reinstated similar dividend yields to what they previously were at. Okay. So you've seen some recovery in, if not the rates themselves, at least the the yields that they're, they're producing at this point. Correct. I mean, the different, I mean, the spread between say the average dividend yield uh, for the average REIT uh, in 2019 over the 10-year U.S. Treasury was about 75 basis points. Um, and that spread today between the average dividend yield over the 10-year U.S. Treasury is about 75 basis points. So okay. it's about the same spread over your you know, U.S. Treasury option uh, today. Got it. And um, in your report, you also gave the example of how one specific example of how a very large and quickly growing uh, yield uh, might point to a looming dividend cut. Can you can you share that example? Yeah, and the reason I bring this up is, you know, I, I want to warn investors against just looking for the highest dividend yield as being the best possible investment. Right. I mean, today the best ones out there, the highest yields we're seeing, are in the office REITs, and I caution that, like. You know, just a couple of years ago, we were looking at, you know, say Maserich had the highest dividend yield um, under our coverage. Um, historically, Maserich has always paid a high dividend yield. Um, you know, over the past 10 plus years, they've averaged around a 4.7% dividend yield. So, you know, very healthy uh, dividend yield over the long period of time. And you're know, going into 2018, they were slightly above that, but not too concerning at five, you know, percent. Um, however, 
you know, the dividend yield is a combination of both, you know, the dividend payout per share, but also the company's price per share. Um, and so since the dividend per share is very sticky, um, but the price changes very quickly, you know, you, you can see a rapidly moving um, a price that drives, you know, a high dividend yield. And that's what's going on with Maceridge. Um, you know, the price in 2018 uh, was slowly falling uh, due to increased e-commerce pressures, you know, thinking that, you know, brick and mortar uh, retail was going to continue to lose sales to um, to online sales. Um, but really the big driver of the company's uh, decline at the end of 2018 was the announcement of Sears total bankruptcy. Um, you know, we had some long-term uh, positive views on the Sears bankruptcy. Sears had never paid a high rent to Maesterich and they weren't driving significant traffic to those malls. Um, however, you know, it's going to take a long time for Maesterich to redevelop the assets and to, re- and to reestablish the lost cash flow that Sears was paying, um, you know, to bring in the newer, healthier tenants who are going to pay more rent. Um, and that redevelopment projects that they're going to have to do across their portfolio, we're going to total in the hundreds of millions of dollars in cash. And that cash, you know, is going to compete with other priorities for the company, which include making div- continuing to make dividend payments. And so while they have to pay out to, you know, redevelop these properties and they had less cash flow, it made it more likely that the company was going to have to cut the uh, dividend. This was made even worse in 2019 when we saw a record number of uh, stores closing in uh, 2019. Uh, We had over 10,000 total retail stores close across the U.S. Um, And so Research continued to see its price fall, which led to the dividend yield continuing to go up. Um, so certain and, investors were probably attracted to this, right? As as this yield is shooting up, you have some investors who are buying in based on that number alone. Correct. Yeah. So you had the price go from the low fifties in twenty eighteen to the low twenties at you know twenty nineteen. It seems like a great deal. You're, but I mean. It, it's so too attractive to be true. I mean, the dividend yield in, you know, when they was down to the low 20s was now in the double digit range. It was like 12, 13%, 14%. And this was pre-pandemic. Um, and so when the pandemic came along, that shot the dividend yield up to 30, 40, 50, 60% as the price fell down to the single digit range. Um, and eventually management had the excuse it needed to make a dividend cut. Now, if the pandemic hadn't happened, a dividend cut was still probably likely. It just it was getting away from itself. It, it needed to correct uh, its course and needed to free up the cash to make the development uh, of the Sears assets. Um, so, you know, it, it was probably likely, but the the pandemic sort of accelerated that um, and allowed it to course correct. And so now the yield has been stabilized to a much more appropriate range that today is in the low 4%. Um, and that's you know closer to the company's historic average. Got it. Got it. So in your report, uh, you did some great stuff. And one is you, you basically ranked all of the REITs under coverage by their historical dividends. You created a uh, a one to five rating based on on multiple factors, mm-hmm. and, and rated all of all the REITs, uh, rated the REITs and ranked them. And then you did the same uh, sort of looking forward uh, in terms of sustaining and growing 
uh, their dividends. Uh, so then you have this, this ranking based on future dividends. Uh, you took the two of those, two of those rankings, added in the Morningstar star rating, I believe, and current yield to create uh, sort of an overall ranking of, of your REIT universe. And you came up with your three top picks, I believe, uh, currently. And I was wondering if you could share those with us. Sure. Uh, so the first company, um, you know, one to recommend is Federal Realty Trust. Um, it's a shopping center REIT. Um, you know, so it is one of the member, one of the three members of our in our coverage list that is in the S and P 500 dividend aristocrats index, um, and it's a very strict standard to adhere to. Um, you have to not only, you know, not have any dividend cuts. You have to raise your dividend each and every year for 25 straight years. Um, it's very difficult for many companies to adhere to that strict list. Um, you know, again, only three of the 27 companies we cover um, actually manage that standard. Um, and Federal Realty, you know, stands out as being, you know, it's a real, it's a retail REIT, and many other retail REITs have had dividend cuts because of the pressures that they have faced um, from, you know, declining brick and mortar sales. Uh, however, Federal Realty has found a way to continue to raise it, and it's their top priority. Um, they want to make sure that they are able to continue to pay a strong, consistent dividend. And even during the pandemic, when you had the payout ratio go above 100% for a couple of quarters, um, they they stuck through it and have emerged out the other side back to their historic you know, level of around 85% uh, of AFO is where they pay out their dividend and they raise it each and every single year. Um, and so they've had... A, great track record. Um, and going forward, we think that they should be one of the top uh, retail REITs in terms of overall growth, uh, because they are focusing on some major development uh, projects of mixed-use retail. So you not only have ground level of retail shops and big boxes, but on top of that, you're building office buildings, apartments, and hotels, um, which should give those retail shops a captured audience of, you know, somebody who always going to be there shopping at your at your stores, because frankly, that's one way that it, it's easier than online shopping to, you know, to go shopping in person is if you're just have to go down to the ground floor to go to the store. Um, so, you know, there may, you've got some very large projects, they've completed some and that have been, you know, really well reviewed. Um, and we think that Fell Realty is just a great, great uh, opportunity for not only for income oriented investors, but anybody looking for a REIT investment. Um, the next company is Realty Income. Uh, they, this is a triple net lease uh, REIT, which means that, you know, they um, basically, are not responsible for the vast majority of expenses towards maintaining their properties. They are, have retail tenants who are lease their uh, portfolio of assets that are all sort of the corner store. Say, imagine you know Walgreens and CVS uh, on the corner of major busy intersections, um, and they own those buildings. But the tenant is the responsible for all the operating expenses and also responsible for all the um, maintenance of the property itself. They have to pay for the maintenance. And so 
realty income just sits back and collects uh, rent, a simple rent payment from them without having any major expenses. Um, it makes it a very safe, stable business um, and are able to, uh, you know, even in, in recessions, their cash flows are not changed very much um, because they have such a wide um, cushion between what the operator, the tenants' uh, cash flows are versus the rent payments that their rent payments are never at risk of being uh, potentially cut. Um, and so because they have stable revenue growth, uh, they are able to promote a stable uh, income of dividend to uh, shareholders. And this is another member of the S&P 500 Dividend Aristocrats Index. Um, and they dub themselves the monthly uh, dividend company because Again, their top priority is paying out a dividend to shareholders. Um, so, for they, a very and a, stable, and they do that on, on a monthly basis, as, as they say. The, yes, they, they pay they, out a okay. monthly dividend. Yes, is that is that common within the industry, or is that fairly rare? No, that is fairly rare. They're they're the only ones in our coverage who pay out a monthly dividend. All the rest pay out a quarterly dividend. So, but they, 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 they dub themselves, they give themselves their own name of the monthly dividend company. I mean, they say dividend company because, you know, paying a dividend is, again, one of the top priorities for this company. Um, so, you know, that's why they also are at the top of our overall rankings. And Kevin, your third pick was a, was a firm that's, uh, its cash flow was definitely impacted during the pandemic, correct? Uh, that's correct. Uh, so our third recommendation is Ventos, which is a healthcare okay. REIT. Um, so they focus on three separate uh, healthcare sectors. Uh, senior housing, which saw a very big impact from the pandemic, but also they own medical office and life science. And one of the things that we like about them is that they do have their life science and their medical office portfolios, which were not impacted by the pandemic and generally should be relatively defensive during most recessions. Uh, medical office is a portfolio that, you know, just should continue to grow at two, 3% every year um, and is insulated from most economic impacts. Life science is a sector that should have a significant growth ahead of it as you know many pharmaceuticals continue to invest in their overall research capabilities and many universities are expanding their uh, research campuses and so ventos is the partner that can provide the clusters of life science buildings necessary to continue to fuel that growth and they're seeing significant growth in the 4 5 6% overall growth every single year from that segment. So those two segments were not impacted by the by the pandemic. However, their largest, which is, represents about 40% of the overall company's cash flows, um, senior housing was impacted by the pandemic. But we think this provides a significant opportunity for growth going forward. Now, senior housing was one of the biggest things impacted by the pandemic because um, you know, seniors were very sensitive to the virus. Um, it wasn't that there was any major outbreaks at the facilities of Ventas. Um, it was more so that there were issues with the facilities being quarantined if there was any contact tracing that led to the facility. So if a visitor had uh, contact, you know, that the visitor had um, the virus or if somebody who worked there may have had the virus, they would have to shut down the entire facility uh, for an extended period of time 
and that meant that you were not bringing in new residents. Um, and so doing that several times uh, throughout the pandemic led to occupancies falling from the mid 80% range to the mid 70% range in about a year's time. Now, since the vaccine has been developed and started rolling out among the senior population, we've seen a significant recovery in occupancy, uh, with occupancy growing month over month, every single month over the past year, uh, since about March of 2021. And it's even continued to see positive growth through the Delta and the Omicron variants. Now, it's not back up to its prior levels, but it's encouraging to see occupancy start to get back up close to where it previously was. However, we think that occupancies are going to continue to you know, reach that level and then push through um, as we see the overall 80 plus population continue to grow. The baby boomers are just starting to age into uh, the target age for these facilities. Um, and so we, while the past decade we saw the 80 plus population grow at an average rate of about one and a half percent, we're at about three percent uh right now. And that uh, rate of growth is only going to continue to um, accelerate up to around 7% by 2027. Uh, so that's a huge amount of demand growth. Meanwhile, supply growth, which had been above historical average prior to the pandemic, uh, commit, construction starts went to about zero during the uh, height of the pandemic. And even today is still well below historical average. And since these facilities take anywhere from two to three years to build, you know, we see out, uh, you know, several years that we're going to have very low supply growth. So with uh, rapidly expanding uh, demand growth and low supply growth, we think that occupancy is going to continue to push northwards into around the 90% range, uh, which is where we were at back in 2010, 2011 timeframe. And back then we saw rent growth of four, five, six, seven percent uh, on an annual basis. And I think with that, you're going to see some very strong growth from senior housing. And that should therefore, you know, fuel strong cash flow growth, which should also fuel uh, strong dividend growth. Um, and okay. so we think that this is going to be a, a you know, company that's going to see lots of growth uh, going forward um, and, you know, should be a good investment for all investors, um, you know, for both those looking for uh, strong growing dividends, but also for uh, investors looking for a company that's just growing its cash flows. Great, great. So it's it's one of the firms that did have have a dividend cut during the pandemic, but your your outlook is very positive for for the firm right now. Correct, correct. And historically, I mean, it, over the past you know twenty plus years, that pandemic cut. Uh, just because of the uncertainty uh, of senior housing cash flows, that's the only time that they have cut their dividend. They made it through the 0809 time frame without cutting their dividend, even though the majority of companies we cover did cut their their dividend during that time period. Ventos did not. So this is Got the it. one exception uh, to to Ventos's history. That's great insight, Kevin. Thank you for being here. Oh, well, thank you for having me. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. 
Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services, LLC, is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.